0: Hey Adam! Everybody, welcome to the show. How you doing? Okay. Cut it back to the craziness, you know. Like it's 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 the back it's the back to work feeling today. I think it's Tuesday when we're recording this, so you know, coming off those two weeks of the holidays where you're not really sure what day it is. I'm I'm a little bit uh, bewildered at the moment, to be honest. How about you?
1: Uh, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How was your holiday?
0: Quiet. Uh, we we had a, a bunch of uh, the Omicron thing is, is everywhere. Right. And so we've got restrictions and that sort of thing in, in Ontario and in Toronto. So kept it kind of quiet, saw some family, but this is the cool thing. My daughter's two and a half. So this is kind of the first year where she understands Santa Claus and right. seeing that for the first time. It's uh it's magic. And I, I just can't wait to do it again. That's great. Yeah. What about That's you? Great.
1: Um, well, uh, it was uh, interesting uh, every year, we, uh, uh, we're very close with uh, my brother-in-law and uh, sister-in-law and their three kids who are similar in age to, uh, to our two kids. And every year, they come and they spend the Thanksgiving week in the U.S. with us, and we go spend Christmas week with them in Seattle. So we get on a plane and we fly to Seattle, and uh, once we arrive, they all start testing positive.
0: <laughs> oh, so no. we made i'm sorry the, uh, i don't know i didn't mean to laugh there but yeah. oh my gosh
1: yeah so <sighs> we made the uh, difficult decision um my son was born uh december 24th uh it was the 23rd we had been in seattle for less than 24 hours got on a plane and flew back to la and when we got back home we uh, uh we all stayed at home for five days uh we didn't know if we uh, we're going to test positive or not, but we all waited five days and then all got PCR tested. Everything was fine. And then okay. we, uh, of so we, we got out of Dodge just in time. Oh
0: yeah. Well, and, and happy to hear that, by the way, happy to hear everybody was negative. Um, your son having a birthday on Christmas Eve, you must have to, it must be tough for him because like, it almost gets overshadowed every year and then having to lock it down. I know he's a, he's a teenager, right?
1: He, he just turned 19 and he's a freshman uh, at university in Washington, D.C. And he's back in L.A. for the holidays. Um, he's going to stay a little bit longer now because his uh, university is going remote for the first couple of weeks of uh, second semester. I don't think he ever really got shortchanged um, having a birthday on the 24th. We always made a point to separate um, um, his birthday from the holidays And always did something special. Uh, For years, we would uh, go to Laguna Beach and hang out on the beach on his birthday. Um, Something you can do when you live in Southern California. Uh, And uh, the holidays always represented, you know, like a very intense couple of days together. And then I would every year fly out, uh, usually on my own, although a few times with the family, to the World Juniors. Right. And, uh, you know, there were years where I'd be flying out to Finland and to Sweden and to Switzerland and the Czech Republic. Um, And and, you know, most of the years um, spend New Year's Eve on the road at the World Juniors uh, many times away from the family. So uh, every year there was sort of a rhythm to, you know, celebrate my son's birthday, uh, Christmas Day, and then the next morning flying out. And it's just mm. something that we that we, the whole family came to expect, and I was, you know, always doing. And of course, this year with everything up in the air with Edmonton and the uh, uh, Omicron and uh, uh, players starting to test positive, playing in the World Juniors, uh, I made the decision on on Christmas Day not to go to Edmonton, and it turned out to be a pretty good decision because. The World Juniors were canceled two days later.
0: Yeah, no kidding. Um,
1: yeah, and uh, and and you know, I spoke to lots of players who were in Edmonton playing on the different teams. They were absolutely devastated, oh. just devastated, and uh, and I felt gutted for them. Um, for many of the players, especially the ones born in two thousand two, this is their last year uh, of eligibility to represent their country, uh, 20 and that opportunity is lost. Oh. So, um, it was, it was very, it, we're, we're still living in very, uh, uh, disappointing, surreal, um, somewhat, uh, uncertain times. And, uh, it, it's still, it, I never thought we'd still be challenged by, uh, COVID, uh, uh, a year and a half
0: uh, going on two years later. But, you know, here we are. Do you get the sense that that there's any chance that this tournament comes back this summer? Like, have you heard anything?
1: There is some talk about it. Um, it's is uh, the, ho- the host country. Mm-hmm. So uh, any, any proposal is going to have to come from Hockey Canada. Uh, obviously, it's going to have to uh, be approved by the IIHF and you're going to have to have a a desire from all the other countries to get together. I think the earliest possible uh, time to put it on would be at the end of the season. So we're talking about a May, June tournament. Mm -hmm. Uh, My feeling is uh, the, the odds of it happening are remote, Mm -hmm. but there still is some talk about it.
0: And, uh, and obviously, you know, we've seen um, over 90 postponements of, NHL games as well, and I, you know, they're not going to the Olympics. Obviously, that gives them some time to make up some of these games. And I know that, like, the Leafs are limited to Wednesday and Saturday games right now. Right. Um, you know, what have you heard as far as how the NHL is going to make that up? Do they have, um, do they have the, the 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 runway to make up those postponements? Do you shorten the season? Like, what what do they do?
1: Well, the runway right now is the the three week break, and I think most teams are going to be. Uh, playing right through it to make up the games that have already been postponed. The uh, sticky part of all this is going to be if we keep postponing games, because I think um, once we get, if we do over around 110, we're at 92 right now, over 110 postponed games, it will no longer be possible to fit all those games into that three-week break And we're going to have to look at pushing the season uh, back and, and playing once again. I mean, last, last year, the Stanley cup was awarded. I believe it was July 15th. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And, and I think the league is uh, they don't want to do that again. And they want to stay as much as possible to the uh, traditional hockey calendar, but we may have to be in a situation where we go, uh, 10 days two weeks maybe even three weeks uh, into what is normally considered the offseason to get in 82 games and a full playoff
0: and and you know you, you get the, the the up close and personal view that short window between the, the end of last season and then of course the start of this season um, you know what was the what is the effect on players what's the effect on the families what's the effect on their bodies because it there has to be something I mean, it's a short period of time. Usually, they got more time to recover. Sure, uh, but
1: I, I think right now, um, so many teams are are shut down mm-hmm. that players are very concerned about um, losing their conditioning. And when you're not on the ice for six or seven days, uh, you need to get some pretty good practices in to get back into uh, game shape and. I have my own theory that, uh, one of the reasons we're seeing such high scoring games, uh, lately, uh, and, and, you know, eight to five, mm-hmm. uh, and games like that is because number one, we're using a lot of, uh, quote unquote call-ups American league players are coming in. And I think guys are, are out of shape and by the time they get to the third period. They're, they're gassed second win. The guys, yeah. The guys are just gassed.
2: Yeah. And,
1: um, you know, there's a uh, a constant pull going on right now between uh, the league's desire uh, to generate and maintain as much HRR hockey-related revenue as possible versus player safety, uh, and and when those two bump up against each other, I think uh, the Montreal game in Florida, where Montreal played with. Um, 11 and five 11 forwards five defensemen uh had a player uh out uh, during the game forward uh, for a good part of the game they were playing 10 forwards and, and five defensemen um you know at what point are you uh it, does the game lack integrity mm-hmm. and and at what point is player safety uh overriding here the desire to play the game and generate the HRR and, 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 avoid a postponement. And I think that, uh, whenever the two bump up against each other, I always believe we should default to player safety, uh, over and above everything else. Uh, some people don't agree with that. That's fine. But I think that, um, uh, we're going to come up most likely with these issues again in the next, uh, week to 10 days, and, and I'm concerned for the players and player safety. And, and, I, and I hope that the decisions are being made uh, to, to protect the players and to also maintain the integrity of the games that are being played.
0: Wow. Well, it's something that we'll, we'll manage significantly. And, Alan, I could talk to you for an hour about this, but we do have to bring on our guest, Doug Armstrong. And before we do, obviously, Doug Armstrong is a longtime general manager in the league. Obviously, he's you know he's got the Stanley Cups. He's worked with legends, and we're going to talk to him about all of that. But why was it important for you to have Doug on this show? Because there are thirty-two general managers in the league. Um, you could have picked from any of them, uh, but Doug Armstrong was an important pick for you. And I, I I wanted to to see what you what you thought about that. Why why Doug Armstrong?
1: Well, I, I don't know if uh, if if every GM in the league would be comfortable coming on and That's and, true. and having a conversation <laughs> yeah. uh, with us. Uh, I, I know Doug well, and uh, I've dealt with him and worked with him for many many years, and I know that uh, uh, many times uh, he and I have uh, agreed to disagree on different issues. But we've always done it with a level of respect towards each other where it's okay to say no. It's okay to disagree. It's okay to see things um, in a completely different way, but still respect the fact that the person sitting on the other side of the table has a job to do and uh, they are doing it to the best of their abilities and there's nothing personal behind it, and I think that uh, Doug is somebody that exemplifies that. Uh, he's had tremendous success at um, everything he's done. Uh, there, I don't know if there's another NHL general manager out there who's participated in two cups, two Olympic gold medals uh, at the Olympic, you know, two Olympic gold medals and two gold medals at the World Championships. That's I think he's a, a solo member of that club. So. He's he's earned his uh, respect the hard way. Um, He uh, has been involved in the game and management for a long time, and I thought that he'd be the perfect person to come on and uh, share uh, his perspectives
0: with us. So let's bring him on. General manager of the St. Louis Blues, Doug Armstrong.
1: Welcome to another episode of Agent Provocateur. I'm Alan Walsh with Adam Wild. Our guest this week is the former general manager of the Dallas Stars, the GM of the Canadian Olympic team. Well, we'll talk about that. And for the last 11 years, the general manager of the St. Louis Blues. He's won two gold medals for Canada at the World Championships, two Olympic gold medals, and two Stanley Cups. Let's give a big welcome to Doug Armstrong.
0: <laughs> Huge audience, Doug. Huge audience. That, that's big. That's
3: big. Yeah. <laughs> How do you like that intro? Very nice. Very nice. Thank you very much.
1: Yeah, it's great to have you here. I don't know if it's ever uh, occurred in history before where uh, an agent got to interview uh, a general manager. So this should be uh, a very interesting uh, next little while together. Um, I've always been fascinated by people's beginnings and their career paths. Can you give us uh, a a brief history of how you got involved on the management side of the game? I know you started in Washington way back when, and maybe you can give us a, a little bit of a rundown from there.
3: Well, I guess I'll go back to my youth. I started, my father was in the NHL for the better part of uh, 50 years. He was an official uh, linesman in the 50s through 79 and then got into scouting for the Montreal Canadiens. So hockey's always been a huge part of my life, a huge part of our family's lives. And then uh, when I graduated university, I wanted to get into hockey and um i ended up actually working in washington in a non-hockey job trying to just get in in my foot in the door and then my first hockey job really came in minnesota back when the north stars uh were gonna half the team the year i got there in 1990 91 half the team the next year was going to go to san jose Jose. but they but they played together for that year and so bob clark took over as manager and bob gainey as the coach and uh they had pretty well most of the front office staff, dean lombardi uh Uh, Jack Ferrer had already gone to San Jose to get ready for that group. So we were there and uh, Bob Clark brought me in and and got me uh, started in the hockey operations area. It was a very small group. And a good friend of mine, Les Jackson, was there. And and, uh, uh, he said that basically I got my MBA in hockey from those two guys. It was like going to Harvard of hockey, working for Bob and Bob. And uh, when I look back on it, he was right. It was a fantastic uh, start. And I, I... so when I got the job, Bob Clark, uh, who turned out to be a very good friend of mine now, I uh, said, uh, in all honesty, Doug, your dad got you the job, but just know he won't keep it for you. So <laughs> he, 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 he let me know very quickly that I was on my own at that point, and uh, and he was a great. And then when he, he went back to Philadelphia from there, <clears throat> Bob Ganey took over as coach and manager, and that was probably... a. For me, just a great opportunity because as you're coaching, you 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 know, obviously the trades and all that, the, all those things went through Bob, but all the all the work behind the scenes had to get done. And I was there to try and help him along. And uh, then that team moved to Dallas. We spent uh, I spent a number of years there, loved my time in Dallas, 16 years, worked the first uh I think 12 as a, uh, as assistant manager, then took over as manager. And then uh, like, as Alan knows in this job, father time caught up to me and I got fired, uh, <laughs> came down to, came down to St. Louis. And uh, as I say, the rest is history. How,
1: how much of a, um, the, those 16 years in Dallas and the years you spent as an assistant GM uh, really prepared you for, for being the guy, for being the GM, being the boss being responsible for the staff, the coaching staff, and, uh, you know, all the
3: transactions and and all of that stuff. I would say the foundation was key. Uh, I think as you, you're younger, I started out, I didn't play in the NHL or play professional hockey. So I was able to get into management in my, my mid twenties. Uh, And so you think you're, you're more prepared than you really are at at 34, 35, 36. And, and I wasn't. Then when I got the job, I realized that uh, I had a lot to learn and, but, Working and getting the, doing the contracts and, and doing all the things behind the scenes really helped me to get ready to be a manager. Uh, and then just the you know, school of hard knocks, you know, the first couple of deals I, you make, you're very nervous, you're... You're calling around, and then you know I'm an of Glenn Sather and Lou Lamorello. Now they're trying to pick my pocket. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, it's it's it's, uh, it's it was a great uh, it was a great experience learning from Bob Gainey and, and working, as I say, as you can tell the, the respect I have for Bob Gainey and Bob Clark is you you sort of get a little street credibility because I I was working with those guys. Uh, they were they were held in such high esteem uh, around the league from the other managers that. I think that lesson you know, made it easier for me to get into that circle. And then, uh, as I said, you skin your knee along the way. We had uh, we had some success in Dallas. Uh, my first five or six years there, we we couldn't reach uh, our ultimate goal in the playoffs. We had great regular seasons, but found ways to falter. And that organization at that time was built on Stanley Cup or bust. We had. Won a cup in '99, went back in 2000, and then uh, I think my years managed. I think we might have averaged 110 points a year, somewhere close to that. Except we just didn't get it done in the playoffs. And in a, in a market like Dallas, it was it was expected to to get to the third or fourth round. And it was Alan, as you would know, it was the timing was different though because in the '90s we almost started in in the, in the semifinals or quarterfinals at least because uh, because the salary cap, you know, we were playing, we had a $70 million salary cap back in the nineties and Edmonton, we played, I think five years in we' had like a $25 million cap. And so they beat us once and then they beat Colorado once, but usually, you know, there was St. Louis, Detroit, Colorado, uh, Dallas that were sort of the cream of the crop playing at a different level, only out of economics and, uh, um, uh, I I call that the good old
2: days.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Doug, I I have a question for you. Uh, As a Toronto fan or grew up a Leaf fan, still am. uh, My first exposure to Bobby Clark for my generation was watching him and Pat Quinn go back and forth over Eric Lindros in the public. Uh, We knew how blunt he was and how forthright he could be. What would you say your, your biggest takeaway or your biggest lesson or your best story from working with Bob Clark would be?
3: Well, there's a ton of great stories. Uh, I'll go back to one my, my dad shared with me when he was an official and they were playing in Montreal. And uh, my dad threw Clarkie out of, out of the face-off dot. And Clarkie looks at me and goes, Hey, Neil, 15,000 people here. Not one person paid to watch you drop the puck. <laughs> 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 I always a, found that one funny. <laughs> that's a great story. That's a great story. Yeah. And, and then just... Just working for Bob, uh, the inclusion uh, was always team first. He was such, both Bobs were, were all around the team. What was good for the team? Every individual had to succumb to what was best for the team. And those are things that I've tried to to carry on in my managing a team is that, um, you know, A, you're working with people. So, Bob Ganey would say, like when, when when trading someone becomes easy, you probably should get out of the business. That means you've lost your compassion for for a gentleman and his wife and his kids or or just uprooting someone's life. And so I've tried to carry some of those things on where you you understand that it's a people business and I think the players understand that a coach has a job to do and a manager has a job to do, but I think there's a way you can try and do it where you show some compassion, but ultimately you have to do your job. It's not, not saying where we, we can't make trades or we don't do things that we're, we're, we don't want to do, but I think you have to do them with the right reasons and and, and think those through. But uh, I would say Bob Clark, I, you know, he was generous to a fault. Uh, I remember a story. So my wife and I were newly married and he had a beautiful house in Edina. And he said, well... Why don't you take care of my house this summer? You know we had a pool and uh, uh, all those things. And I said sure. And then he threw the keys to the Porsche to me for the summer. I was like wow, (laughs) I have made it. All right. So coming from a small town in Sarnia, Sarnia, Ontario, I called my friends. I you got to come up. You got to come up this summer. You got (laughs) to see this place I'm staying at. he was a he's he's so uh, personable and so generous. Uh, That that's what I really remember him. And he. He he helped me every step of the way trying to be, trying to become a better manager. When I became a manager, uh, he helped me along the way. He'd answer questions. He'd you know he he had his job to do too. If he could pick my pocket, he would. But he really helped me understand what it was going to take to have success in this past just three or four years and then being out the door. Wow,
2: wow. Yeah.
1: You know, I I obviously remember, you know, Doug, you and I are just about the same age. You're born in 64. I'm born in 65. And all throughout the um, Montreal Canadian years in the uh, 70s, the the Flyers won their two cups. And there was that great rivalry. And, uh, you know, Bobby Clark was known for being such a warrior on the ice, such a leader in the room. Um, It was almost natural for him to move over into management after his playing career And I know that he was uh, a very important mentor to you, but you've also talked a lot about Bob And I know that uh, Bob also served as a tremendous mentor to you in Dallas, uh, first Minnesota, then Dallas. Why don't you talk a little bit about what it was like uh, uh, working uh, with Bob?
3: Yeah, well, Bob Clark was interesting because it was all in a short period of time, maybe two or three years. Uh, Bob Gain and I had a relationship, uh, uh, you know, through his coaching and management for better part of a decade. Our families became very close. Uh, We were there, you know, Bob allowed me to share in the high of a Stanley cup that he managed. Uh, I also was there for some of the darker times in in his life, the passing of his wife and his child. And, and we became very good friends, still are very good friends today. I consider him maybe my best friend. He and Ken Hitchcock in the sense that Alan, he's one of those guys you can call and you pick up to where you were four or five months ago. There's no small talk needed. There's nothing there. Uh, But what I, what I learned from Bob again, Was just team. Uh, He was the ultimate uh, team player for the Montreal Canadiens. Did all the little things. Uh, His work ethic was off the charts. Uh, That that's what I noticed from him: his work ethic, his preparation, his you know, not never looking for a shortcut, never looking for for an easy way out. Always went through the front door and everything that he did. And those are those are the things that you try and pick up on as 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 you're managing not only managing a hockey team, but Being a partner to my wife and and raising kids, I learned a lot from Bob on on just being a a good person or trying to be a good person. He is. I'm trying to be.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And how did that transition take place? I know that um, uh, if I remember correctly, um, Bob Ganey uh, uh, left Dallas as GM. It was probably uh, about a month before the trade deadline. Um, How did that... Uh, transition take place for you?
3: Well, what happened, Alan, about a year ago, maybe a year and a half before that, uh, there were some teams because we're having success. And uh, I was at that age where people thought I might be ready for a job. uh, uh, Bob went to the ownership and said, I I sort of have a a timeline I think I'm going to work on. And I recommend that Doug become the manager or else we have to let him start interviewing for these jobs. So I had known that I was going to be taking over for Bob at some point. It wasn't supposed to be at the end of that year. He left in February. Uh, That team had run its course. It it, it was, it was a very good team. It was a veteran team, uh, but players were getting older. And I think, and I know this from firsthand experience now, uh, you know, he decisions had to be made on guys that, that that bled for Bob and poured everything out for Bob. And I thought he he felt at that time was ready to let somebody else make those decisions. So we'll fast forward. So I, I, uh, Bob, uh, steps down. He, uh, lets Ken Hitchcock go the same day. So Rick Wilson came on with me and worked that year out. Uh, so we're at the trade deadline that year. It's one of my favorite stories. And, you know, Bob stayed on as a consultant. So we're, we're in my office and, about two hours where I'm working on this big deal with Lou Lamorello, but I'm basically, I feel like I'm the middleman, you know, when I look back on it. Uh, Blue would say something. I said, hang on. And I put my hand over the phone. And, Bob, what do you think? <laughs> and, and it ended up being a Jason Arnott, a first round pick for Jamie Langenberg and Joe Neuendijk. Yeah. And as a deal was going on and, and I was kept looking at Bob and uh, I was working with uh, Les Jackson at the time. And maybe Francois Gigueroa was with us, but if not, it was those two guys for sure. So it was an hour before the deadline. And Bob says to, to Les, he says, well, time to go for lunch. You know, Doug's got a job to do. He's got to figure this out. I'm like, what? <laughs> whoa, whoa, where are you going? <laughs> and then he just said, hey, you wanted the job. This is the job. You got to figure out what you want to do and you got to do what you think is right. And so they walked out and they shut the door. And I'm sitting there like stunned by myself, <laughs> looking at the clock, knowing I got to make a decision here. <laughs> and we ended wow. up making the trade. And, uh, uh, it was, you know, it was it was difficult. Uh, Joe, Joe, and Jamie had done so much for Dallas, and and I consider them friends at that time. And I, you know, I look back on it. It, I think it worked out. They went on and won a Stanley Cup. We had some great years with Jason Arnott, uh, but it it was that was the hardest trade I ever had to make because I, I, I was new at it. Uh, Joe had just bought a new house and was, moved into it the day before. Oh, about. Ooh he about a, a block away from where I lived and we lived a block away from each other in our previous homes and somewhat close, you know, contemporaries age wise. And Jamie Langburner, you know, was a great player for us. It was really hard. When I look back on it, it's it's the one that I found most difficult, not, not because of having to make a trade as just what those guys had given that organization and probably didn't see it coming. And quite honestly, I didn't see it coming, but I know I'm babbling here, but we had, like a, a great left-handed centerman and, and Mike Madonna. And I, my vision was if you have a great right-handed centerman and are not, you're, you're built down the middle. And yeah, so I sort of talked myself into making a trade. And as I said, it worked out for Dallas too. We had some great years with Arnie and obviously uh, Jersey had some great years with Jamie and Joe. So mm-hmm. um, that, that was an interesting one for me.
1: Now, how, how often do you speak uh, with other GMs? Is it on a daily basis are there certain GMs you speak to more than others?
3: Yeah, there certainly are certain GMs. I think it's, uh, uh, I, I go back to when I started, uh, you know, in 2002, I would talk to the younger managers because I was much more comfortable talking to those guys. And uh, now I get to, you know, 2022 and I, I'm talking to the older guys because uh, <laughs> they're much more comfortable talking to me. But uh, I, I try and... Reach out to guys as much as possible. Uh, uh, in today's technology, you can you can do it through the cell phone via text messages, or uh, and and we do a lot of stuff like that, which is which I, I find a little bit not disappointing. I don't want to, but you know, you lose that human touch in today's world right now, where you can just text somebody or. And, and it, we used to have to do that via phone calls. And uh, again, a, a Bob Clark story to all the managers when I was starting out, he said, like, we're at a manager's meeting and he had called, he was calling guys. And this is when cell phones were just coming into vogue and all that. So, you know, we don't have a lot of jobs to do, but if a manager calls a manager, you got to call them back within two hours and, and just say, so I'll get back to you later. Mm-hmm. Because everyone was now you know, there was a voicemail and you get back at a different time. And, and I, I miss, I miss some of that personal contact that we have with managers, but to answer the question, yeah, I, you know, there, there are, there are guys, Kenny Holland and I talk quite a bit, uh, um, you know, just guys that I've been around with guys that I worked with a long time, but I do, I do enjoy talking to Kyle Dubas, Julian Breeze, that next generation of guys that are, I remember what I was, what I was going through when I was that age and you just try and support them. And just the way that the, 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 the veterans supported me. Do they ever call you for advice uh, on, on their team? Yeah, uh, they, they do. They do. And we, and we talk uh, again, we, we all understand that we have a business to do player trade wise, but the advice Alan would come more on how to deal with a coach, how to deal with scouts, how to do deal with certain situations. You know, what, what are your experiences teach you how to, how to manage a, a, a relationship with the player. So again, we, we try and we try and help each other out. It's a small fraternity. There's 32 of us, uh, it's you know there's a, a saying that would the, the best job in hockey is an assistant coach or assistant manager because you're you're involved in everything but your head's never on the on, <laughs> on, the, on the chopping block
2: <laughs> yeah.
3: And, yeah and that's what that was one of the again bob gainey stories what's the difference between a manager and a coach or a manager and assistant manager and he said well when you're the manager you hear everybody's points of view and then you go home and toss and turn at night when you're an assistant manager you give that and you sleep like a baby (laughs) 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 and and so uh but but we do we do we do try and help both each other uh again it's it's a small fraternity and we are we are friends and we do understand what what someone's going through with their family like especially in today's world it's much different alan now that instant, instant analysis after every game, uh, you know, you win three in a row, they're planning a parade route, you lose three in a row, they want your head on a, and, and it gets retweeted and retweeted and retweeted on how stupid you are. And uh, it's, it's, it's funny, it's a job now, I think that's much easier for a coach or manager when your kids are older. When I started out, my kids were, were you know, five, you know, very young, uh, and, and in grade school. And uh, I, I think it's very hard today in social media to have young kids in these professions. Yeah, talking about social media, uh, are,
1: are you on Twitter and and how often are you uh, using it and for what purpose?
3: Uh, I'm I am on Twitter. I I, I don't tweet though. I I, I have uh, there's I think I have 22 people I follow, and you're one of them.
0: Uh, (laughs) uh,
3: well you got more than enough to read then (laughs) i gotta say i do cringe every once in a while but i I don't know if you should have told me you followed me (laughs) (laughs) but no i i I just follow strictly hockey people people that that i know are connected uh and and i i am on it quite a bit i read i like to find out what's going on around uh I, i don't i haven't maybe it's my age or maybe it's my profession or maybe just the way I look at it. I, I don't see a lot of purpose of me tweeting my thoughts out to other people. Um, uh, I don't, I don't know why, you know, uh, I see other guys do it and have a lot of fun with it. I, I have a lot of fun reading it. I don't have a lot of fun writing it, but uh, I, I think social media is a great way to, to, to gain information for sure.
1: Okay. Go ahead, Adam.
3: Well, I, I, uh,
0: you know, I think one of the things that everybody's questioning if, if, we're, if it comes to social media, Alan, and I hope you don't mind me asking this is, you know, there's obviously um, the Olympics coming up and there is a, like a, there's a huge there's a huge story right there already. Right. And I, I guess, you know, what do I what I would want to know is, you know, as, a, as somebody that uh, has retweeted and <laughs> done all the things you talked about. Um, with what, what happened with the NHL players not going to the Olympics, um, did you find out about that on Twitter or did they give you the heads up first? Uh, and you know, how did you react to that? Because that has to make your job, um, more, cha- much more challenging.
3: Well, I, I, found out through hockey Canada, uh, the, the league and the union had reached out and told them that, uh, that that decision had to be made and Alan and I had actually, uh, we, we talk quite a bit in our profession and I consider him a friend and uh, I know he has a lot of clients that are Olympians and I understood how important it was for the players to go. And quite honestly, the coaches to go, management to go, uh, but it had to be under the umbrella on what was best for, for the NHL and for hockey and what we've gone through the last two years of, of uh, interrupted seasons and, uh, interrupted season again. Uh, I, I think our, as, as someone that gets paid by the NHL, someone who who makes his living, I understood the the necessity to have this year be as, as normal as possible. Uh, but it was disappointing. Uh, from a manager's perspective, uh, I, as a manager, I got almost everything I wanted out of the Olympics in the sense that when, when you're a manager of an NHL team and you get to the trade deadline and you've done all the damage you can do to your organization. All you become is a cheerleader at that point. You try and support the players. You try and support the coaches. Where we were in that Olympic process is we were about, Alan, well, maybe two weeks away from, from naming the teams. And so most of the work I had done was 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 completed. And that's the part that I really loved. I got to meet assistant managers of, of Kenny Holland, work work with, again, Don Sweeney, Ron Francis, Roberto Luongo, uh. You know, I got to meet John Cooper and then he named a staff and we met together. So I, I again, hockey is about relationships and I got to add a whole new layer of relationships in there and. I would have loved to see Canada go. I, I would have loved to been part of to watch uh, uh, become a fan and watch Sidney Crosby and Connor McDavid and McKinnon play with each other and and, and how they're gonna interact. Uh, uh, I, I wanted to see Matthews and Kane. There there was so many great stories in the NHL. Uh, the young Russian players that uh, on uh, on Tampa, you know, the goaltender uh, Kucherov. There, there was gonna be. It, when we get back, it's going to be a great tournament. There's going to be great things to it, but I did understand the decision that was made by the league and the PA uh, to, to have to make a very hard decision. And, and but I also understand the, the the sorrow that the players feel for not going. Any chance
1: you think that the uh, uh, Olympics are postponed and we can uh, do all of this again in
3: 2023? I, I don't know. Uh, quietly, I and, and I guess it's not quiet I'm on your show, but I'm hoping that, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, I, you know, I, I love the experience. Now, if we go back, there's no guarantee I'll be involved in it. But even if I'm not involved in it, I'd love to watch it. I, again, the Olympics are about the players, and it's about being a fan, uh, watching the best on best. And, uh, you know, you, you don't – the only way I think the Olympics would be postponed is that if – COVID takes another higher step and you, nobody wants that in society. We want to see it go the other way. We want to see COVID go away and get back to normal. But if it if it does, if it does step up and they do push it off, I think, you know, in the NHL and the uh, go, go to the Olympics in 2023, I'll, I'll certainly be uh, fully vested in watching at least. So Marc-Andre Fleury, was he there? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to, I'm going to tell I had this question now. Everybody on like made the team cuz I'm not making any enemies right now. <laughs> so yeah, so, oh yeah, he was on it for sure. Yeah. <laughs> day, he, he was on it for sure.
1: <laughs> so we can put Jonathan Huberto in there as well. He made he were, it for sure. yeah, he's yeah, right it. there for sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh one thing that uh, uh, I find really interesting is that you've always surrounded yourself with uh, very experienced people uh, from uh, Dave Taylor, former GM in Los Angeles, um, uh, Larry Plo, you kept uh, on and, and was very close and involved in management, you know, longtime GM in, uh, in St. Louis and longtime uh, in management as well, previously with the New York Rangers. Uh, and nowadays you've got, uh, uh, you know, Walt, you've got Robbie DeMaio, uh, you've had Marty Brodeur uh, as an assistant GM uh, or operating as such, um, Kevin McDonald, um, With all these people around you in management, how do you delegate authority?
3: Uh, well, I think it starts by getting as many good people around you as possible and as much information as possible. Uh, Peter Sorelli and Alan McGinnis are two names that, uh, that I know you are, are, are deeply entrenched in our group right now. And yeah. Alan, I think it's just part of, uh, I don't want to say a leadership style, but I read a book, Lincoln, on leadership. And, and it was basically surround yourself, be the dumbest guy in the room. You'll end up being the smartest guy in the room. And, and that's what I try and surround myself with people that have, have you know, great knowledge in other areas. As far as delegation, when, when you have people that are working for a common goal, you really don't have to delegate because they, they, they seem to understand and, and everybody fills a gap. And if there's a gap there, you start out with, with like roles. Okay. You, you're going to take care of the minor league team or you're going to take care of pro scouting. But you know, I want Robbie DeMaio to be a manager. I want Timmy Taylor to be a manager. And to do that, I have to allow them to get into areas that might not be in their job description, but allow them to gain knowledge. You know, and and with, whether it's a, a Dave Taylor or Larry Plo or now a Peter Shirelli to have those guys that they can, the rest of the staff can talk to. Sometimes a manager, if you lose a few in a row, people are afraid to call you because they, they don't know where your mindset is at, but with... Peter or Larry or Dave, they can give them a call and they can, they can help them walk through to increase their value in the organization. And, you know, one of the things that you, you, you want to try and do, I was able to do it in uh, in uh, uh, Dallas with Francois Giguere. He came and then he went on to be a manager. You know, you want to see guys move out of your organization. Uh, you know, Marty Berder went on to be the president in uh or sure. uh, high, high job in new jersey and what you want to try and do is put guys in positions to have great success other places and and to do that you have to give them the opportunity to learn and, uh, and but i'm very fortunate I, I don't work with people that are trying to climb the ladder as you know as you see some guys that are willing to step on whoever they have to step to to move up I, i've been fortunate enough to work with guys of high high quality and high character that understand that the better we do the better we the better you know we do they do
0: Right now. Oh, go ahead, Alan. No, it's, it's all yours. <laughs> OK, so I got to ask you this. What is it like uh, dealing with agents? What's uh, because one of the things that we have, like if you, if you get a if you get a call and it's from Alan Walsh on your phone, uh, what what instantly goes through your mind? What's the first thing that comes up? Block it. No.
3: <laughs> <laughs> voicemail, no. voicemail. 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 <laughs> uh, Alan and I have a great relationship. We actually talk quite a bit about things uh, around the game and in the game, and, and quite honestly, outside of hockey too. But I, I would say I don't know how if Alan feels the same way. I found it more difficult pre salary cap in, in our relationships because there was no there was always an extra dollar there if you could find it. Right. Uh, you you know what I mean? Like it's you you had to say stop. Well, go to your owner, see if he wants to give that other hundred thousand dollars. This guy's done this and that. Now you just say, here's the pie, and it's this big. And there's no and you. No matter how big the slice you get, it's somebody else getting a smaller slice. And so I find it quite a, quite a little bit easier right now to deal to deal with with player representatives as far as contracts. Uh, what what I've hopefully Gained experience in is is working with agents to do what's best for players away from the rink. Trying yeah. to you know they're are people and and they're you know everyone's gonna you know stub their toe, skin their knee along the way, and might need some help. Whether it's at the rink, away from the rink, with family and. Um, you, what you want to do is you want to leave this game having people say that he was a hard negotiator whatever they want to say about the way you did the job but he was a good person he treated as well and i think to do that you have to have a good relationship with the agents because the great agents that's all they want to uh they're all going to make their money they're going to you know alan has a a term i'm not going to use the full term but it's uh, he says, you know, when he's dealing with a player and, and they're talking about leaving, it's like, don't f with happy. <laughs> yeah. And 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 quite honestly, I really believe that. You know, there, there's a point where you have to you have to make that judgment for yourself as a as a coach, a manager. When's enough enough, and when you're happy, and as a player, when's enough enough. And I think it's easier to do that to, to say, you know what, I am happy, I want to stay. If you've treated people fairly from the get go.
1: Hmm. I completely agree with what you said, Doug, but keep in mind, um, the St. Louis Blues have been a salary cap team Mm -hmm. probably for the last decade. And there are other teams out there, uh, some that are not at the cap and not near the cap where that discussion, like you said, is really a matter of going back to the owner and saying, you know, can we do this? We have the cap space to do it for now, and we're probably going to have the cap space to do it for the next year or two. So certainly, if you've got limited sca- uh, cap space available, that's something that as an agent, you have to recognize and take into account in any negotiation. Uh, and it's certainly easier getting deals done when teams are capped out as opposed to when they're not. Mm-hmm. No question.
3: hmm yeah. It's, it's just, it's just that the pie is only so big. And I think that's, again, with the relationship you build, not only with the representative, but you build with the player too, where, where they might not, you know, the, the other thing is like, the easiest lie is the first lie you make with somebody. It's the next one that gets harder and harder. And right. so if, if, if you don't lie out of the gate, if you're honest, they might not like, they might not like what they hear, but they know they're hearing the truth. and And that's, that's one of the things that I think that uh, makes makes life easier. That if you just deliver bad news as compassionately as possible, but it's still bad news, people can accept that because they know they know they're getting the straight goods.
0: And Alan, I got to ask you. Doug Armstrong calls you. <laughs> What's your <laughs> first thought?
1: I <laughs> uh, always answer the call. Uh-huh. Um, Doug, Doug is Doug is known uh, negotiating in the aging community. As a tough but fair negotiator. Uh, But I also find that uh, for people in management, uh, it's somewhat rare to find somebody who truly cares about the players, who cares about their families, who thinks about it. We all know it's a business. And part of the business is, Doug, you have to trade players. You have to at times put players on waivers. you at times have to deliver uh, bad news, sometimes shocking news. Um, and that's not an easy spot to be in, in in any profession, but it's what you signed up for. Uh, on the agent side, um, you know it's our job uh, to always represent the best interests of our players. And I find that um, 95% of the time, the team's interests and the player's interests are completely aligned. They really are. The team wants the player to be playing his best. The player wants to be playing his best. And the agent wants the player to be playing his best. So all of the interests are aligned. Doug, how do you deal with it when an agent calls you and he's not happy with a player's ice time? Uh, He's not happy with the player's opportunity. Uh, An agent calls you and says, you know what, this
3: isn't working here. Uh, Trade, trade this guy. How do you deal with that? Well, I think it, to me, Alan, it all goes back on the relationship with the player. When you get that, when you get that call from a, from a player that's 21 or 22, you try and, work through the process that that it is a foundational process and that you have to pay your dues. You know, the coach, whether you like it or not, he's, he's going to go to the security blanket of the 28, 29, 30 year old veteran that he might not get the high end, but he's not going to get the low end. Uh, and, and I always say to players, it's, it's, it's not how good your, your best game is. It's how good is your worst game? That, that's what you got. You got to You got to get the Valley way closer to the top of the mountain if you want to be a consistent NHL player. Uh, And when you're dealing with a veteran player that says, you know, like the the ones that get me are are when you got the guy in his early thirties that knows that the, the window is starting to close and you're not playing him and he's a healthy scratch for X amount of games in a row. And you know, in your own mind, you're, you're having a huge effect on his next contract, his ability to stay in the league. That's when you try and work with guys to, is there is there a better solution for you? I think no nobody is looking to ever ruin a guy's career. That's that's just, that doesn't happen. No, nobody gets up every day saying, okay, how can I screw this guy today? Even if it hurts the team, like life doesn't work that way, at least it, where, where I work. And so I, I think everyone's a little bit different. I think some of the... Um, some of the newer agents, they, they may call quicker than the, the veteran agents. I think the veteran agents are uh, have the ability to take the first call from the from the player, maybe wait and see if it, the second call comes, and then maybe on the third call say, okay, this is serious, I got to call the team. I think probably the agent's job and I've ever but I ask Alan it's like a sifter. like you, you, you got to shake through. And you got to find out, you, like all the crap that gets stuck in the sifter, you got to throw out. And if there's stuff falls through, you got to deal with. But you can't just deal with it every time. I'm sure like, like, you can't pick up when you get a phone call 11:30 at night that I only played 11 minutes last night. Call the GM right now. I want out of here. You probably say, "Okay, yeah, uh, I'll get right on that." Then you roll over and go to bed. <laughs> yeah, so, so I, I think dealing with those ones again is knowing the situation, but trying to trying to put yourself in the players' shoes or skates uh, in our industry. But and that's why again you talk back to I can call Peter Shorelli, I can call Dave Taylor, I can ask Al McGinnis and, and Keith DeChuck as players as star players. I can ask Robbie DeMaio as as a guy that had a great career as a worker. Okay, like w- what is he thinking? What is he going through? How can we help him get through this? And so, and obviously our coaching staff too are all ex players. Uh uh this staff is were worker bees. I mean Steve Ott was a worker bee Craig Berube was a worker bee, you know, these are, you know, jim Montgomery. So these these are guys went up and down. So they they have a they have a good uh feel and pulse for the guys on what they're going through and they can help me navigate these uncomfortable times when things aren't going somebody's way.
1: So, so an agent calls you and he's not happy about uh, something going on with his client. Um, and, and this is more uh, hypothetical or philosophical on, on your part, not referring to any specific uh, time timeframe or, or coach that could be behind the bench. Would you typically bring in the coaching staff or go see them and talk about it or or would you uh talk to the player directly what what would be your preferred way to deal with it on your end
3: well i usually what i'll do is if i if i believe there's validity to it i won't say to the coach listen i just got a call from player x's agent or player x and he's unhappy because that i don't know how the coach is going to react to that so i'll say geez i was wondering like he he was playing good before that and he was playing with this guy and you know, I know I know player Y is playing better, but you ever think about putting him out in this situation to get his ice time up? You you try and take the message if you believe the message is correct and work it into their thought process. Uh, I brought players in and at you know, and say I, I understand your frustration, but you're 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 23 years old and you can either uh, I go back to what we said earlier. Like I've I said this to many players. Trust me. The coach didn't wake up today, and I didn't wake up today. SNTs. I wonder how we can get that guy today. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so you might you might think that, but that's not how we think. We're saying, how can we win that game tomorrow, and how do you fit into it? And so you you, you try and work it, but I I don't try and. I, I Alan, my my belief is, if if you try and pit a player or a player representative against the coach, that's, that's not a recipe for success.
0: Doug, right. can we talk about, uh, can we talk about the Stanley cup? Sure.
3: sure. I'd love to.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I mean, it, it, this, the St. Louis run is one of the most unbelievable runs in recent memory. Um, and, and really I was talking about this last night with Alan. It's the last one before the world kind of went off kilter with this pandemic, right? It's the last season that we played intact and the last time I can actually remember what happened in the season because there's been so much fracture in the, in the past couple. Um, you know, the, the thing that people forget is that in January, things weren't looking that good. And I just wonder, as a general manager, you know, with the trade dead deadline closing, and I believe you guys were in last place, if not close to it, and turn it around. When do you decide, okay, I, I guess we got a shot at this? And how close are you to going? well, we're going to sell at the, at the trade deadline, like we had to do in Dallas.
3: Well, I would say that going into that year, we had high expectations. We had just uh, brought David Perron in. we just brought Ryan O'Reilly in. we, we had brought players in that made not only ourselves, I always go to Vegas. Like where where does Vegas Vegas thinks you're good? You're probably good. If Vegas thinks you're bad, you're probably bad. (laughs) And, and, and we were our, 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 like we were, you know, sixth, seventh in, in the betting to win the Stanley Cup when the year started. So I was more surprised by the lack of success we had early. Uh, but then you then so then you go through that initial look in the mirror phase like, have I lost my touch? Have I lost? have I lost my foundation of what I think is right? Is the game passing me by? You start with yourself and then you, you answer those questions. And then, uh, and Alan can, he had players on that team. We had a meeting, I would say in the middle of December, that was just basically that we believe in you guys, but that doesn't really matter. I can believe in you as much as you want. If we don't start winning games, either you're not going to be around or I'm not going to be around, but the owner is not going to just sit here and say, Oh, well, they're a bunch of good guys, so I don't really care if we lose. <laughs> and so we were we were out in Western Canada. We had that meeting. We started to play better, uh, and the wind started to follow. Obviously, we got Bennington in here, and he went on a roll. Uh, but we had a lot of ground to catch up. And then when we started to play good, we got to the trade deadline, and it wasn't a team that we needed to add a lot to uh, because we'd done that over the summer, but it certainly wasn't a team that I was. I, I felt – anywhere comfortable pulling the rug out because they had worked so hard that I thought they had earned the right to see if how far they could take that. And obviously they took it a long way that year, but it was uh, like, I think when as a hockey fan, you look back and you remember the January, but people are going to say, well, that was a pretty good team. They had 99 points that year. It wasn't like yeah. they, it wasn't like, uh, my first year in Minnesota, we had 66 points and went to the finals that's cinderella oh man that's true (laughs) yeah so this is a 99 point team that 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 was a good team now obviously our second half uh was fantastic and and the guys did a great job in the playoffs to to get it all the way through but there there was a time in there that if you didn't turn it around you know were we going to start a some form of a rebuild and it's funny. We have that success, and now we're at a, a point where we've carried that on for the last three years. We've been a good team. We're a decent team again this year, and and we believe that we can compete. And it's amazing what a you know if you lose five of those games instead of win five, we're probably you're probably not talking to me anyways. You're talking to the guy that's the manager of the St. Louis Blues, and, and there's probably a whole bunch of different players here too.
1: So I'll I'll, I'll share a story with you. I don't know if I've ever uh, I told you this. But uh, the day before Game Seven in Boston, uh, in 2019, uh, David Perron and I were getting coffee at a coffee shop, and we're sitting there having coffee and talking, and we're talking about, you know, stuff other than hockey because I wanted to get his mind off the game, and just we were talking about, uh, you know, plans for the summer and, and and other stuff, and we look up, and you're across the street walking by yourself. Um, and I know that you like to go on walks when you're in cities on game day and the day before the game. So I snapped a picture on my phone of you walking on the sidewalk across the street, and I sent it to you. And I uh, and I titled it uh, "A General Manager Alone with His Thoughts." <laughs> and, uh, and and you know you responded with something very witty as you usually do. Uh, and and then I were you know I remember um, vividly being at the game, sitting with David's uh, mom and dad and uh, and wife, and we're all sitting there. Um, and when David lifted up the cup, you know, the emotion behind it, he lifted up the cup and he, he knew exactly where his family was. And he locked eyes with them as he raised it. And, and you just saw standing next to the dad and the mom and the wife, the emotion of the moment with David holding the cup and his mouth wide open, and his mom and dad, and and the look on their faces and to to be there at that moment. It's you know, there've been several moments like that in, in, in my journey, my 27 years in the business, but that's one of the very special moments you never forget.
3: Yeah, well, I could just there, there's people you want to see win the cup you you want to win it yourself you want to win it for everybody but but there's certain people that that you think have earned it that 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 have maybe spilt a little more blood along the way than other guys and David was one of those guys uh, he was he got drafted before I got to st Louis uh, but we sort of grew up together in this organization uh, I started out as player personnel and he was playing and you know we got better than I traded them, and then we brought them back. And we traded them. We brought them back. We traded him, We brought
2: them back. <laughs>
3: but, but the reason we did that it was, I always respected David. I always felt that he cared and he loved hockey. And his first couple of years here, and Alan can attest this, the, the guys used to get mad at him because he practiced too hard. He worked too hard. He made them look bad. And I remember saying this to him was, "That's their issue, not yours, David. Like that's that's you know." I get it. They're they're and they don't they're veterans. They don't want to do this, but you got to do what you think is right. And he's got that passion, that love of the game, that work ethic that he has. The one of the first players, you know, of of, of that young, uh, so young to put a gym in his basement. all the little things he he did. When I saw him lift the cup, those are the things that came back to my mind. And. You know, and then there was other players, not just David on that team, but there are certain guys that you've been around a long time that that feels really great to see them do that. You know, a a young player in 99 when we won was uh, was Darian Hatcher. His first year, Darian uh, lived with my wife and I as a 19-year-old. And then of us assume he's, he's lifting the cup and, you know, it, so there those, those relationships you have with guys that are a little bit different. And, uh, but I, I know what, I know what Alan's talking about when you see the, when you, when you have a relationship like Alan has with David, the, the joy the parents have, it becomes communal. It, it's not just those two, it, it's the whole family. And yeah. what was it like for you? Yeah. Uh, it was fantastic. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I think it, it was, it was, so we in, in 99, or I'm sorry, in the, my first year in Minnesota, 1990, 91, I think Pittsburgh won that game seven, seven to one. It was my first year in Minnesota. I, I didn't understand what was going on, but the game was over early. Uh, then in Dallas in 99, we won the cup, uh, in overtime triple overtime i think With and the, the, next year, the, we... the, the alleged skate in the crease that's right yeah it wasn't even close
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I, said I said alleged i said
3: alleged <laughs> <laughs> and, and then the next year we lost it we lost it uh in overtime jason arnott scored the goal actually in dallas so this was my next uh, my next trip back and you know, all of a sudden, David makes a, a great play to Sanford. Really, to, to I think it was for the fourth goal, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't Allen? Yep. That sort of made you look up, and you're okay. It's four nothing. There's ten minutes. That's you're not you're not a hundred percent comfy, but you're way more comfy than two. <laughs> 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 and, then, and, and, and then I I really got to enjoy the last three or four minutes, and then I, I think just more of experience. I was I started to think about the guys that are doing it for the first time and the guys that have bled so much. I started to think about Bobby Plager, the late, great Bobby Plager, you know, spent his whole career uh, from the day that the Blues started and he got to touch the Stanley Cup. There was so many people that in St. Louis, you know, that that wanted to be part of that. And it was just a great experience for me, but it was more because of what others were getting out of it than when I was getting out of it. And I'm not saying that I didn't get a lot out of it, but, I, but I really took a lot of joy watching everybody else celebrate. That's what I remember about that one.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, uh, Doug, I know you got to catch a flight and uh, you've been incredibly generous with your time. Uh, we could probably easily talk another hour or two, uh, but then you'd be flying commercial. on,
2: uh, <laughs> on break, so, And I
1: know you don't want to do that. So, thank you very much for joining us. It's been uh, it's been uh, everything I thought it would be and more. And uh, I'm very uh, appreciative uh, of you taking your valuable time to come on and 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 share some stories with us.
3: Well, I appreciate you guys having me on. It's been a lot of fun, and I look forward to uh, uh, continue to work with you, Alan, and getting to meet the guys you're working with more and more down the road.
0: <laughs> you got it. Thanks, Doug. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks guys. Doug.